Why can we trust God in difficult situations? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we are back in Acts. We are looking at Acts chapter 12, in fact, the first 17 verses of that. Um, so, listener, long-time listeners have have been have noticed that we are going through a zigzag through the, the post-gospels. Um, uh, in Acts and the Epistles, bouncing back and forth a little bit. Uh, the reason that we're doing that um, is not just because we are, um, you know, following along with the Gospel Project's uh, scope and sequence, but the but the key reason that we're doing that is, is because we're connecting thematically um, throughout the Epistles and Acts to show to basically do a little bit of a deep dive into into a big idea that is present in the narrative itself and, and go a next level with it. So here we're back in the back in the narrative itself. And um, how about you set up some context okay. for what we're going to talk about today? So did we zig back into the con- the narrative or did we zag back into it? I think we zagged back. Okay. So we zagged back in. We are in Acts chapter 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we remember Acts chapter 10 and 11, if you kind of read this in one sitting, which is always a great thing to do. If, if you are listening, have not done that yet, I would really encourage you um, block out a little bit of time, turn your phone off, turn devices and everything, um, get comfortable and just read the book of Acts in one sitting. And when you do that, when you read more broadly and larger sections, you're able to pick up on some things much more easily than when you read a chapter or two in isolation, which is great, of course, to do. Mm-hmm. But there are some things. And if you were to do that, as you're reading Acts chapter 10 and 11, it, you know, Luke is such a great storyteller. The, the pace of the story is his picking up in those chapters. We are, we are moving rapidly toward the church engaging in missions efforts. So it started, the gospel is in Jerusalem. We know Jesus gives the model, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, the utmost parts of the world. And the church's growth, of course, is following that model. And in chapters 10 and 11, you just have this, this beginning, this inclination that it's moving out. It's, a, it's about to really explode in this great way, and the gospel is going to go forth. But then we get to chapter 12, and it Mm -hmm. slows down. Acts 13 records the first missions trip, which we'll talk about in a future episode. But Acts 12, it's like the narrative comes almost to a halt. That pace that has been building slows or stops. And when you first read it, it's kind of jarring, and you might say, why? Why do we go from this missions effort building to talking about Peter being imprisoned, um, James is martyred and before that, and inherits death. And it's going to make sense. We'll talk about it later. But this, this passage, this chapter 12, is that narrative in those three parts. 
And then we get back to the missions effort in 13. And I hope as we walk through it again that we're going to see what is here is really important. And, and Luke put it here for a very good reason to help us understand the bigger picture of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so the while the bulk of our time is going to be really be focused in in verses 6 through 17, um, definitely, again, um, do read the whole thing, whole thing as you get a chance. Um, what I'm going to do to start our discussion, though, is, is I am going to read those first 17 verses because it's short enough that we can do it without taking, taking a really long time on the show. So, Have at it. I'm going to make right. some coffee while you do that. All right. That sounds great. Um, save some for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each, um, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound in two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! And the, and the chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and fo- followed, and he did not know uh, that, that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. And as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door on the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. So there's a lot there. And I mean, this is this is a really fascinating story that we see. I mean, there's so much, uh, so much to dig into. Um, but how about you uh, You kick us off? Yeah, I, I just love this. This is a passage. We've talked about this before, Aaron. And before we dive into it, I just want to say it again here. Um, don't miss the humor in this. There there are several places in Scripture where there's humor, and humor is definitely here. And that does not mean that that uh, it, it cheapens the truth of what's happening here or anything like that. Not at all. Um, but there are a couple parts here, like Rhoda leaving 
uh, Peter at, at the gate. She goes and, and tells the people, there's some funny, I, I think what happens with Peter getting up and the angel telling him what to do, I think there's some humor there as well. So as you're reading it, again, don't read this flat in, in a wooden manner. Um, imagine it more. This is a true story. And, and so just find find those little humor things and appreciate them. So the first thing, um, I think, as we look at this passage that we might want to ask, not really an earth-shattering, important question, but an interesting one is why was Peter given such a heavy guard? We see this in verse 4. Four squads are assigned to him. Likely that is not four squads at at the same time. It is probably four squads who would rotate shifts. So I mean, this, it'd be pretty impressive if it was. It would be. Uh, but even with that, um, one squad of, say, four soldiers to guard Peter seems, you know, excessive. Why? Well, we have to remember, look back in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 19 specifically, this is not the first time Peter had been imprisoned and he didn't stay there. So I think the leaders remember that and they're like, okay, <laughs> let's do a better job this time. As we're going to see, still not good enough. So no. that's, that's kind of the first thing. Yeah. And I mean, we what we know about Peter is... He was not some kind of crack uh, escape artist no. or anything like this. <laughs> so, but apparently he was gaining a reputation for yeah, that. He, so. was. he was he was Houdini before Houdini was. That's right. All right. So another question that we should be asking here is, um, what might we be able to learn from Peter being asleep? So um, we know that at this point, James had just been executed. Peter surely knew that Herod was going to make a spectacle out of him during the Passover. And yet, there he is in prison, um, not just sleeping, but sleeping with two guards right beside him. Like, I mean, going back to that other question, it's like, they they were really serious about making sure that Peter stayed put. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, he's got, you know, around the clock garrisons watching him he's got two dudes with him at all times it's like still wasn't enough and still wasn't enough um and so we see him we see him here sleeping and apparently sleeping soundly um you know uh, what we can infer from this is is that that this is a very different kind of peter than we met in the gospels this is a this is a peter who is very much in a place of peace and trusting in God. He is confident in um, in the God that he that he worships. That whatever whatever is going to befall him is is ultimately uh, is ultimately his will. And I mean that's a hard thing yeah. considering one of his one of his oldest friends just died. That's that's hard. And so for him to be sleeping and sleeping so soundly that an angel had to whack him to get him to wake him up and then had to walk him through the whole process of getting up and getting dressed just to get out the door. Um, I mean, I have a I have a now nine year old (laughs) and um, and I know what that's like from a nine year old perspective. As I read it, that's kind of how I envision it. It's like us. It's like. You know, my youngest son, Caleb, is nine as well. And it's like, Caleb, no, wear your shoes, man. You, you got to put shoes on. And he's like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's the like, where's those like, pants? Come on. Peter, come on, man. Get, get dressed. What are you doing? Right. Right. It's like, man, you should be ready for this. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. I mean, it is, 
it is really interesting to see just how different Peter is yeah. here from from when we first met him. Definitely. And that is a good reminder for us all as well, is, is that as we progress in our faith, we should be different people than we were. Yep. And we and that's one thing I really appreciate about in Acts, because of course we see it in Peter before this at Pentecost and so forth. The Holy Spirit's difference in his life is is just amazing. And this kind of takes us to the next question that piggybacking on what you just shared about, why did Peter doubt his escape was real at first? So if you look at verses 9 through 11, it, it, it says he thought it was kind of a vision or something. Mm-hmm. Perhaps because of the grogginess of being awoken that we just spoke of, um, it could be, you know, think about us practically. If you're—this has happened to me before. I woke up in the middle of the night one time because somebody knocked at our door at like 3 in the morning because somebody was trying to steal our car, and the car— was honking. They tried to hotwire it or something, and the horns just started blaring. And um, one time, it was one of our carbon monoxide, which is the bad one, monoxide. Carbon monoxide. Um, Our our alarm went off, and of course, you just kind of it startles you. And there's that Mm -hmm. window of time where you're not quite awake, and you're trying to make sense of things. Is this a dream? Um, Is that alarm really going off? Is that really somebody at my door? It could have been that. It could have been Peter in this semi-awake state trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And or it could be uh, that even in this time of Acts, miracles were still just that. Miracles. They were miraculous. You don't expect miracles in that way. I don't, I don't you know, did Peter believe that God could rescue him? Sure. But I don't think he fell asleep expecting to be awoken by an angel to be let out of out of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, again, when we read these, just like we don't want to read them flat and miss the humor, um, we don't want to read them as flat, matter-of-fact accounts and, and fail to see something like this, that we read it and the miraculous or the miracles may not seem miraculous because we're too familiar with them. We know yeah. what happens. We read the words. An angel let him out. Okay. Let's move on. What's next in my daily reading plan? Instead of stopping and thinking, wait a minute, what was it like for an angel to wake Peter up and, and go through this? You know, it could have been that Peter saying, it's hard to believe this because it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. By definition, something that's hard, if not impossible to explain and hard to come to terms with, even something so good as this. So, Again, as we often talk about, Aaron, as, as we look back at these narratives, we always have to remember we see with hindsight that the original people lacked, and we need to give them a little grace. Um, and sometimes it's their benefit, because I believe Peter appreciated this far more than we might as we read it now, if we're reading it flat. I'm glad you made that comment about about miracles being miraculous that that can sound like a a bit of a and water is wet type <laughs> of thing but we have to remember that miracles by definition are things that are unusual yeah. they they don't happen in a commonplace way so um, and, and, and that would, and, and that's one of the things that, that is so easy for us to forget when we're reading the Bible, because we forget that time is passing in the narrative and sometimes lengthy periods of time are happening. And so you can see back to back different miraculous events happening 
and not realize that they're happening over the course of about, in some cases, 20, yeah. 30, 40 years um, in, in some instances. Other times they're happening over the course of weeks or days um, or, you know, or constantly um, depending on the purposes of God. Um, and so that, that is just a really important thing for us to, to latch on to that we shouldn't see, we shouldn't start to see these things as commonplace any more than any more than Peter did. So, um, another thing that we, uh, that we should be asking of this is, um, to, to look at the encounter between, um, the other believers and, this this servant Rhoda and um, who there and and so why did they not believe her report when they had been gathered together to pray for Peter to be released presumably um, and so here's so I mean this is the thing is is I mean you can look at this and you can you can think well even though they were praying for Peter, it didn't seem like they believed that God was going to rescue him or that he could rescue him. And I mean, truthfully, we don't know for sure what they were praying for in regard to Peter exactly, because it just says that they were praying for him um, and praying fervently for him. So it could be that he would stand firm. Yeah. It could be that he would be released. It could be um, for, um, it could be for any number of things, really. Um, and so, so there, there could be this question of like, well, we didn't expect that. And, uh, and, and so that could be the thing they could have just assumed, well, he's going to die. So, um, and they've probably already killed him, but, um, but we, we see this, this other thing in this encounter that is really strange to us, um, where they say, well, it must be his angel. And so, Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, in pop culture today there um, and um, as well as in pop religion, um, a lot of talk about guardian angels and what they are and what they aren't. And, um, you know, in pop religion, it's um, people who died, who who were our loved ones become our guardian angels. And that's well, one, that's just not true. But um, but two. Um, it's also just not what happens. Yeah. So, um, so it's not true and it's not true. <laughs> um, and water is because wet. that's right. That's right. Uh, well, I mean, angels are a different kind yes. of created being. And so that, and so we as human beings do not turn into another kind of creative being, uh, or created being rather, um, when we die, we remain human beings. Yes. <laughs> so Very important. That is a big deal. Um, so, but this whole idea of, of, of this angel, um, this angel of Peter's, this was a, this was a Jewish belief at the time. And, and really this idea was what they were thinking ultimately was, um, that this angel was coming to them right after Peter had died. And so they were seeing this more or less as he's done. And so they seemed to be resigned to that fact and, they had no hope or, or idea that, that he would really be there. Yeah, and, and let me jump on that. And the next question, I think, tangent to that one is, then does this passage teach that guardian angels are true? And again, as mm-hmm. you were describing, not people who become angels, but an angel, a separate created being, 
appointed to watch guard over us. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, some people today believe that is the case. Uh, Does this passage teach that? Not necessarily. Um, This passage is one passage that somebody could use to build a case for that. But we have to be careful about this uh, mandating that guardian angels are true. Just because the people that day believed it to be doesn't mean it was. So we have to be careful when we speak of biblical inerrancy. So the Bible is true without error. That allows the Bible to faithfully record the mistakes or even outright lies of people and, mm-hmm. and beings. So for example, the Bible is inerrant, yet it records Satan's lies to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. It faithfully recorded those. That's what Satan, using the serpent, said. Mm-hmm. Accurate. So the Bible is inerrant. So we have to just be careful here. So just because the uh, the Bible faithfully records what the the gathered believers in that room thought was happening does not mean that was actually what was happening. It just faithfully recorded that's what they thought. Yeah. So when we look at scripture, I don't believe there's conclusive evidence either way. Um, I don't believe, again, you can find a handful of passages to build a case that there could be guardian angels. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't believe it's conclusive. I don't believe you have enough evidence there to say, look at this. Therefore, we can know that every believer has a guardian angel, just as I don't believe there's conclusive evidence the other way to refute it, to say, no, that's an absurd belief. Here are verses. It's another one of these where we just have to give grace and flexibility and recognize there could be, Mm -hmm. there may not be. We don't quite know. The, The thing that we do know when it comes to angels, of course, is from scripture is that they are engaged in the world around mm-hmm. us too. Yes. And so, I mean, you think about Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13 uh, talks about not neglecting to show hospitality to strangers, strangers because some of you may have um, served angels unaware. Yes. Angels are real. They, as you said, they are created beings. There's a finite number of them. Uh, they have finite capabilities uh, and so forth. Uh, they serve as God's messengers. Uh, they serve, they do his bidding. But, and so we don't know how many there are, but we do know that they are real, that they are engaged right now in the affairs of the world. Another question that we've got here is, why did Peter tell the believers to report what had happened to James. So reading this, it can get really confusing really fast because you, you're dealing with a lot of people who are just going by a first name. Yeah. Um, because surnames, the way that we understand them, um, didn't exist in that, in that form. Um, I think that's, that's probably the best way to say it. That's why you see in scripture, you know, it's, um, so-and-so the son Son of of, so-and-so. So, um, for me, it would be Aaron, the son of Andy, <laughs> um, if if we didn't have surnames. Our surnames now um, are a mix of different things. So some of them are based on trades. Others are are actually taking that um, that same kind of approach. If you are going to try to brag on your name being Armstrong right now and trying to say that is indicative of of your burliness, I'm gonna throw a flag on the play. 
No, 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 no. It's an old. It's an old name, okay. man. It's it's you know a few hundred years old. Um, and for the record, I have no idea what Thimbozik means. Johnson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it means son of. It means son of John. There you in, go. Uh, in in Polish, there I guess. You go. <laughs> We're gonna get in trouble for that one, probably. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, all right, so. Here's the thing. If you're reading this and 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 you're and you're just doing a fast read over it, you might think that this is some kind of inconsistency because the passage starts with James getting killed. And so Peter would have known that because it happened before he was arrested. Yeah. Uh, this is a different James. And it's a really important James because it's the James who wrote the epistle yes. of James. The James who would also um, wind up being a little bit of uh, being a, a little bit at odds with with Paul sometimes, um, and be and this was James, the half brother of Jesus, who went on to lead the Jerusalem church after Peter and all the other apostles were exiled. So basically, the big big idea here really is that. He wanted the he needed that news to get back to um, you know to HQ if you will. He wanted the the whole church to yeah. know, and so how? What do you do? You go to James. Exactly, and I think that takes us to the last question I see here, and it goes back to what I was talking about, giving the background of this. Why why is chapter twelve here? Why did Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, see fit to? seemingly wedge this in with that building narrative driving toward mission. And I think the answer is because this really does advance the narrative. It really does speak to mission. So I think in two ways that we see that. The first is that we see here a reminder of God's power over all circumstances. And this would be so important for Paul and Barnabas, for example, to remember as they went on mission, the others who would, who would go on a mission, the sending churches, uh, this would be so important. Also, at the tail end of this, we didn't really cover it, but at the tail end of this account, we read that Herod, is, is he, he dies. God takes mm -hmm. his life. And that's important because that also practically could have opened up greater opportunity to expand the gospel forth. He was a resistor to the gospel, so with his death, um, that could expand it. In verse 24, the very end of this chapter, we read that the gospel was indeed flourishing and multiplying. So what we're seeing here is kind of the, the foundation for the gospel going forth in missions that we're going to read in chapters 13 and beyond. Really, pretty much the rest of the book of Acts is going to be this mission's focus until the very end. And even this is even the end is missions focused with Paul going to Rome. Um, so from here on out, it is going to really be heavily missionary kind of focused. So that's the first thing. We're, we're reminding, we're we are reminded of God's power over all circumstances, even a, one that seems so bad as, as Peter being in prison. The second is this. This shows us the health and strength of the sending church. And by sending church, I'm thinking more broadly. We know Antioch is the church that will send out Paul and Barnabas. We're going to see that in chapter 13. But I, I'm speaking in general, the, the, the church in Jerusalem and that greater area of, of Judea and so forth. We know that healthy churches plant healthy churches. And missions um, 
while they can strengthen ascending church, it goes both ways, they should be done more as an overflow of health. So again, it goes both ways. A church on mission, that mission's activities can help strengthen and help make a church healthier, but ideally that church will be healthy so that it can plant healthy churches as it is engaged in missions. So here we are reminded that that this sending church, the larger church, was healthy. It was growing. It was in a good position to go out and plant new churches. All right, Brian, that is a really good point. And um, now let's let's transition and think about this passage from a discipleship perspective. So we've already t- we've already covered some stuff here, but uh, what kind of guidance can we offer listeners as they work through it with others? I think the first one goes back to what you mentioned about the the uh, the believers praying for Peter, and we don't know quite what they were praying for. And I think as we think about how we should be praying for believers who are being persecuted around the world, and right now we know there is persecution of the church. Mm -hmm. There are regions in this planet where the church is facing really extreme persecution. And so what should we be praying for? Well, you know, I think our our gut reaction is to pray for deliverance, and, and I think that's okay. I don't think it's wrong to pray for, pray for God to deliver believers from persecution. But I wonder, would it be better for us to pray for endurance? Uh, I think you mentioned this, Aaron, as you were talking about the church in Acts 12. Um, should we be praying for strength of those believers and faithfulness to endure whatever comes their way? Because God has not promised to rescue them from persecution he may rescue them through persecution, meaning they may even be put to death, and he will rescue them in death to be with, with Christ and use their death for his good and glory. Um, so, you know, praying for believers to be faithful and, and, and to endure, but also I think we can't forget to pray for the ones who are doing the persecuting. Mm-hmm. We need to be praying that they come to know the gospel, that they trust in Jesus prayerfully through the example of faithfulness of even the ones they're persecuting. We have to be careful not to see these people as the enemies. We, in our human nature, we, we tend to want to do that. Well, those are bad people. Yes, they are doing evil, sinful things. We don't want to hedge from that. Don't want to minim- don't minimize, minimize that at all. No. But they are sinners in need of salvation. They are not the enemy. The scripture says very clearly, our enemy is not flesh and blood, even those who are persecuting the church. So the posture of the church should be to pray for the faithfulness of the church such that it is so beautiful and compelling that it even wins those doing the persecution to saving faith in Christ. I think that would be the better regular prayer posture to be in concerning persecution of others. So Brian, that's a really good point. And, and something else that I would add to this is that we should really be considering um, and encouraging others to consider how we should respond ourselves in times of persecution. Now, um, I'm just going to say this. This is going to be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, because it's what we do when we <laughs> need to tell the truth and we love people, is by and large, American Christians and Western Christians 
do not experience persecution like the Bible describes and definitely not like what our brothers and sisters in Christ experience in other parts of the world. We are, we now, it is fair to say that there is the potential yeah. for that, but we're not there. That doesn't, so that doesn't mean that we need to be passive or, or anything like that, but it also means that we need to need to avoid, um, what, uh, what some have, um, uh, dismissively dubbed the evangelical persecution complex. Yeah. And so, so we need to be, we need to pay attention. We need to, uh, mind, like be mindful of what's happening in the culture, but we also have to recognize that, that we have, um, we have a great deal of freedom to live our faith as we see fit. Um, we have a great deal of freedom to say what the Bible believes on every, uh, or what the Bible teaches on every single issue that we face in our culture, even as, um, even as we have great cause to be concerned about the trajectory of society um, in, in North America and in the Western world. Um, in light of that, we need to be thinking of, so we need to think rightly about our situation, but we also need to recognize that we, that, um, we need to embrace where we are with the same kind of faithfulness that we see in, uh, in the examples of James and Peter and so many others. So that includes praying for those who are persecuting us, doing good to those who seek to do us harm. Um, um, and being confident in knowing that the worst that someone could do ultimately is kill us. They can't destroy our souls. Nope. And so there's joy in that. There's also joy in knowing that as we are persecuted, we are following in, in the steps of Jesus. Again, we don't really know entirely what that's like as North Americans. We just don't. Not to that degree. Um, but Jesus did say that, you know, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you too. And so we are not going to be exempt from that ultimately. Um, but that doesn't mean that we live in fear of it. We can have, we live with, we live faithfully, we live joyfully. And the last thing is, is that we live at peace. We live peacefully, knowing that whatever, whatever the outcome, whatever happens, whether uh, the current trajectory of Western society actually does lead ultimately to true persecution, the way that we see it, the way that we see it um, in, in many other parts of the world, or if it doesn't, that God is good. Yeah, that's a good word. And, and I agree with you, Aaron. I think we have to be careful um, at times we are prone to uh, to look at signs of coming persecution. I'll phrase it that way. 
and declare it has happened. And yeah, you, you can look at some things in the trajectory. I wouldn't disagree. Seems like, yeah, we are sliding that direction. Mm-hmm. And we should be aware of that. And we should do what we can to to slow or stop that. So think think politically, you know, we should, there are certain laws that may be passed that we should stand against or for, depending on what laws they are. Um, yeah, every right to be aware of this. We would be naive and I think foolish not to be aware but when we start wringing our hands and declaring, as is often the case, you see, you see these declarations. Oh, look, look what happened. And it's like, OK, I've, I've, I'm 48 years old. I've, I've heard this before. You know, I can rewind and we had the same conversation X number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are still preaching the gospel. So I think we just need to kind of relax a little bit Um Again, walk that balance of recognizing, let's be aware of things that aren't good, that we need to mm-hmm. um, resist in the proper way. But at the same time, let's not be so uh, conclusive that, all right, this is it. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's move on. Yep. I, I think the, the other thing I would encourage as we disciple um, believers and as we consider it for ourselves as well is we want to live from the overflow of our relationship with Christ. Again, we kind of talked about that with this uh, chapter giving us this understanding that the church was in a good place, which was good for them to do missions. Similarly, I think as we disciple, we want to do that from the overflow of our close relationship with Christ. So missions and, and discipleship and all these can be efforts again that are good, that can help us be closer to Christ, but we should not be utilitarian in that regard and look at this as that. Ideally, again, we are serving because we are just in awe of God. We have to remember, our identity determines our actions. Our identity in Christ should determine our actions, so we should disciple, we should be on mission and so forth, because that's who we are as a, mm-hmm. as a changed Jesus people. But our actions can also help us shape our identity. It does work both ways. So let me kind of give you an example, and we'll wrap this up. Um, I've, I've talked to people before who are going through what we can call a spiritual drought. They're just kind of dry. They're in a season mm-hmm. where they're not feeling close to Christ. They're not feeling you know, excited about reading Scripture and prayer and so forth. And they might hear something like we were just talking about saying, okay, well, if I'm not feeling like reading scripture, then maybe I shouldn't, because then isn't it's hypocritical of me, right? If um, Shouldn't I want to read scripture? Shouldn't I want to pray? Shouldn't I want to sing in worship? And if I'm not feeling that way, should I not, because then it's hip- hip- hypocrisy? No, you should still sing. You should read. You should pray, because often that is what God will use to bring you back to where you need to be and end the spiritual drought. So it, these, these practices can help with that. Um, and it's beautiful that God does that. But again, ideally, we would want to be discipling. We'd want to be serving from a place that we are growing in Christ. We are loving him. We are in awe of him and joyfully serving as that overflow. Man, that is a good note for us to end on. So let's do that. Um, so Brian, thanks for, for chatting about this and thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.